Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. What is nationalism, and why has it become so important in the 21st century? I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but also go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. If you're watching on YouTube, you can click on the super thanks button under the video. Throw a few pennies my way that way or go to Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe there as well. Also, if you're at brianmcclanahan.com, click on that shop tab. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Or go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. This is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. I teach there with Tom. It's another great educational website, so you can use McClanahan Academy and Learn True History to get a real history education. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Leave it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. You can do that at Spotify or at Apple. You can also comment on YouTube for the algorithm and send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right, well, let's talk about the topic, and that is nationalism. Now, I've done a lot with this over the years on this podcast. Uh, Now, about seven years on this podcast, I've talked about nationalism several times. In fact, the theme of the show being Think Locally, Act Locally is a direct refutation of nationalism in many ways. And I remember when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, and then, of course, he called himself a nationalist, and you had this America First foreign policy and all these things that came out of that. People were talking about these issues, and nationalism became a pejorative. People were uh, using it as a scary word, right? Scary. Nationalism. And this goes back to uh, the, the accusation that Trump supporters are somehow fascists, which, of course, we know is not true. It's just a simple, you know, boogeyman kind of scare tactic. But uh, the word nationalist was censored for a time on places like YouTube and others. If you tried to upload a video or post something with the word nationalism in it, they would restrict the views on the video, which was absolutely hilarious in many ways because it shows you how stupid these people really were behind the scenes. Now, I've been talking about this term nationalism the entire time I've been teaching, and that's over 20 years. And it's always been within the context of the 19th century, and then what that led to in the 20th century. Nationalism becomes popular in the 19th century after the French Revolution, because you have the rise, of course, of nation-states. Before that point, you really had kingdoms. But by the time you get to the 19th century and the the, uh, disbandment or the 
um, the dissolution of some of these kingdoms that you see because of the French Revolution and then how that works out politically, you start seeing nationalism become very important in Europe. And really the French Revolution unleashed that and then Napoleon carried it to other parts of Europe. And it was a, a different kind of political movement. And of course, you see this manifested then in all the different French revolutions. There wasn't just the first. There were others. You see it in the 1848 revolutions, which were left, left wing, but certainly there was a kind of nationalist element to it. Of course, you see it in the centralization wars in Germany and Italy. You see it in the United States under the guise of nationalism and the war for southern independence. You see it there. You see it in Argentina. You see it in Brazil. You see it in different places around the world as nationalism becomes this code word for centralization. In many ways, that's what was talked about. Now, nationalism uh, is, by definition, the love of nation. And then you have to define what nation is. It's a love of nation uh, and uh, a, a promotion of nation in, in regard to an opposition to another people or nation. It's not patriotism. It's something else. And this piece I'm going to talk about was published at Law and Liberty. And it's an interesting piece because it gets into you know this discussion of what nationalism is in the 21st century and why it's important in the 21st century. It's the, it's the question that I asked at the beginning of the podcast. Why is nationalism so important now? And let me give you some, some context for the United States. There were people in the founding generation that talked about an American nation. There were nationalists in the founding generation that believed we had a singular people. I mean, the nicest expression of that in the ratification process is John Jay's contributions to the Federalist. Now, John Jay was lying. As anyone knows who studied enough U.S. history in that period of time, John Jay was making this stuff up because he wanted to try to forge a nation knowing full well that we didn't have one. And the evidence is all over the place. Washington's farewell address is a nice example of the fact that he was aware we didn't have a nation. We had different peoples in a federal republic who didn't really like being in a union together and were not a, sol a solid unit of one people. However, that one people myth becomes politically expedient for those who want to control the power of the general government particularly in New England. This is where you start seeing nationalism become much more pronounced because they are New England sectionalists. And what they understand is that the things they promote can be covered under the guise of nationalism, but in fact are only going to help New England. I can say that there were people in America who firmly believed in a union of all the people for the benefit of all the people. And I would say that one of those would be John Taylor of Caroline, though he never believed in an American people. He always believed in the people of the states, which is the accurate description of America. But he certainly didn't think that any one section or state should harm the others. That was the benefit of the Union. That's why we had a central government with very limited powers. And however, you have New Englanders who see the opportunity in the 19th century, after the War of 1812, to use this this idea of nationalism to bulldoze their way across America. They wanted to force New England on the rest of the United States. And the best expression of this, of course, is uh, Charles Sumner's activities in the Senate beginning in the 1850s. He wanted to make New America New England. 
He was very open about it, and that's what we got. American nationalism, by the time you get to the 1840s and 50s, and Daniel Webster and Charles Sumner and all the other New England nationalists, was New England sectionalism repackaged as American nationalism. Now, you could say Henry Clay was perhaps a real nationalist. Henry Clay, of course, from Virginia slash Kentucky, did believe in the American system, as he called it, which was repackaged Hamiltonianism, but Clay was always, in his mind, a Jeffersonian. And he thought this kind of economic package, or if you add in some of the other things that went with it, like a national university and other things, that these, these national initiatives would forge a much stronger bond for the Union. And I think Clay really was interested in doing that very thing. He wasn't a sectionalist. Clay was in Kentucky. He was someone who would uh, support the South, but he also believed in his economic and uh, political programs. And so he really was kind of this glue in some ways to the sections. Now, everything he was doing could be questioned constitutionally, but I think Clay really was someone who had a national agenda in mind. Daniel Webster was not. Though Webster, by the 1850s, realized that if he didn't start uh, speaking in terms of a union rather than a nation, the United States was going to fall apart. Uh, American nationalism has always been the thorn in the side of the union. A real union, a union of people of the states, or a union of states, which you can't have states without the people of the states. And so that has always been the problem. Those that speak of an American nation are ignoring the entire history of the United States particularly in the early uh, days of ratification and afterwards when we had a real federal republic under a Jeffersonian vision. That is the problem we, that, that you have with American nationalists. They ignore all that early history and instead rely on a Lincolnian version of America that's not historically correct. Lincoln is the pivot point. This is why I've talked about Lincoln so much on the show. He's the pivot point. He's the point where America goes from a federal republic to a singular nation, a united state. And people talked about this stuff. They openly talked about this stuff. In fact, if you take my reading secession class at McClanahan Academy, which, by the way, it's still on sale. You can still get $60 off. All you got to do is be on the email list and you get the coupon. You want to get it because this deal won't last forever. But if you take that reading secession class and you start looking at the arguments against secession, and I give you two, one by a man named John Motley. Motley essentially argues that we have an American state. And uh, that's the point. We, we've always had a singular entity. But that's not true. That's not what we've ever had in the United States. Even after the 14th Amendment was ratified, even after we had the 15th and the 13th Amendment and the other amendments we've gotten in the post-war period, they didn't change the nature of the general government. You do have people that make this case, that argue for this. They argue that there is an 1868 Constitution with the 14th Amendment, and at that point, the Founders' Constitution is gone, and we have this new Constitution. That's the new argument coming out of the left, and even some on the right, people like Randy Barnett. Uh, you have this new constitution. I, look, I can I can get on board with that um, in a way that there is the, the people on the left that argue for things that they argue for, they can't find anything in the original constitution to defend it, so they have to come up with something else. I'm just going to tell you, I don't think the 14th Amendment is being interpreted properly in the way that they're doing it. Contra Randy Barnett, who's written a big fat book, which I reviewed on this podcast, 
that argues that's not true. What I'm saying is incorrect and Raoul Berger was full of it. But I think Raoul Berger's argument is much stronger than Barnett's. However, that's in the weeds. I have talked about that on this show, though. So let's talk about this idea of nationalism and where it comes from and why it's so important in the 21st century. As we start looking at American politics, you have all these people now, and, and just world politics, right? You've got Europeans that are interested in this idea of nationalism. You've got this ism, right? It's an ism, so it's a we have to define an ism, right? A core set of beliefs, values, uh, and it's a systemic program, right? An ism. It's an ideology. An ism is an ideology. You have this ideology and you have to work toward that end with a political program, generally, is how it works. Uh, So this is why you could say that a traditionalist is not an ism. They believe in tradition, which is not an ideology. It's just the accepted. It's things as they are, as Kirk called them, the permanent things. Conservative is not an ideology. Now, when you start getting to things like economics and free markets and all that other kind of stuff, you could say that some of these things are an ideology. You try to fit things to that program or that that, that idea and how things are supposed to work based on your understanding of the world. But when you just have things as they are, that's not an ism. Nationalism is, though, an ideology. So let's get into this piece. It's by Gillian Richards, Law and Liberty Defining Nationalism. Richards says, current debates over nationalism seem to generate more heat than light. Critics claim it amounts to creeping fascism. So this is the problem. It's, it's uh, when you say nationalism, oh my gosh, that's fascist. This is just so stupid. You can be a nationalist without being a fascist every day of the week. So, I mean, that argument is ridiculously stupid. But, of course, this is what people will say. Champions claim it's the way out of a conservative malaise and failure. Figuring out who's right is hard to assess, though, since disputants use the word to refer to so many different things. We might expect this this equivocation from critics on the left. But even those who endorse some form of nationalism don't seem to agree on what it means. I mean, this is a problem, right? What what does nationalism actually mean? I like the fact that Richards is trying to hash this out. What does nationalism mean? Now, I don't think he actually goes into saying what it does mean. I mean, that's one problem I have with with the piece, that it really doesn't do a good job even defining it through the piece. Some, for instance, define it as a popular or democratic resistance to a global empire. That's one that you often hear. Right. Well, nationalism means I'm against a world order, a new world order, a world government. I'm just pro-U.S. That's nationalism. The problem is that you have to have an American nation, which you don't really have. And anytime you ask people and you put a traditional definition of nation for them to see, and you say, does America fit this definition? The immediate reaction is no, it doesn't. So what is an American nation? Does it even exist? I go back to John Taylor of Caroline. Saying there's an American people is like utopia for utopians, right? It doesn't exist. There's no American nation, in other words. We have a federal republic, and that's the way it was designed, and that would be the most peaceful way forward, frankly. Others equate nationalism with certain policies, such as those thought to boost working-class jobs. Some understand it as a broader disposition to promote the national good. It's fair to ask, if nationalism means so many different things to different people, what extra work does the word do beyond sowing confusion? Indeed, 
what some refer to as nationalism may be mostly a robust defense of national loyalty. If so, then talking about that might help reverse the ratio of heat to light in the current debate. So he's saying, look, we've got all these different definitions, and some people just think, well, I'm just loyal to the United States. Some people think it's about, we need American manufacturing. We need to have an America first foreign policy. That's nationalism. What does this actually mean? Is it a traditional definition of nation, or is it just, I'm an American? Uh, again, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be an American? These are big questions which, uh, if you went back to the 18th century and you started talking about these things, well, that would be a little more murky because certainly someone in New England would not identify with someone in South Carolina as being of the same. In fact, they really didn't like each other. Someone in Massachusetts or someone in South Carolina. Now, Connecticut and South Carolina, someone like Roger Sherman, would get along fine with John Rutledge. But uh, to the average South Carolinian, the average Bay Stater, maybe not. I don't know. But we know there was tremendous amount of cultural conflict between these two sections and two groups of people. And it wasn't over the issue of slavery. There was a lot of other things going on there. They did talk about that, but that wasn't all. Three nationalists, four definitions, he says. Each of the above views figured into a recent panel at the Catholic University of America. It addressed a simple question. Are nationalism and Catholicism compatible? The answers were far less simple. Dr. Bradley Lewis from Catholic University School of Philosophy pointed out that what we often refer to as nationalism is simply a desire for democratic accountability. And this only exists at the level of nation states, not in transnational entities like the United Nations. So this is you know, a desire for democratic accountability. That's nationalism. That's a weird definition of it, by the way. Very strange definition of nationalism, because if you were to ask somebody in the 19th century, is that nationalism? They would say, well, no. Democratic accountability? Napoleon was a nationalist. Did he believe in democratic accountability? No. I mean, this is just stupid. But, of course, um, you know, there might be this perspective now that we have to have some kind of control over the center, but that's not nationalism. Anyways. First things, editor Rusty Renault defined it a bit more narrowly. He called nationalism a priority-setting word that signals a regrouping of national identity. Many feel the pendulum has swung too far toward global empire, he argued, so they turned to nationalism to, re to reconsolidate power. Uh, a regrouping of national identity. Again, but you have to ask the question, then, what is a nation? Is the United States even a nation? Is there a national identity in the United States? I don't think there is. I mean, I think, again, people on the left and the right would probably say no. Depends on where you are, but they would probably say no. And I, and I say this because for 20 years, I've asked this very question in a class of very diverse people uh, from all over the United States and all different kinds of backgrounds, and they all come down. Now, you will have somebody that argues, yeah, we've got a nation, and then you press them on it, and they'll say, well, maybe we don't. Because if you look at a definition of nation, they, they get tripped up on this. They just are, we have a nation's capital, we have a national anthem, we have a national this, we have a national that. But then they don't really think about what that actually means. The related National Conservative Coalition, in which Reno has figured prominently, likewise emphasizes the need to reclaim national sovereignty against an encroaching global regime. And again, this is the, well, we got to have a singular America first foreign policy. We got this world government. We need to be America. 
But what is America? Is Joe Biden America? If America is, 50, is over 50% left, would these conservatives be comfortable with calling that America? Exporting leftism to the world, which is what we do. do they, is, is that America, though? Is that American nationalism? Is that, that's how people see America. You have immigrants come to the United States and you ask them, how do you, what do you think about America before you got here? And I think conservatives would be shocked by it. They would give you very left-wing answers. Is that, would conservatives be comfortable with that? A foreign policy, a perception around the world that is decidedly imperialist and left-wing. Is that what they want? This is the National Conservatives. The NATCOM's homepage defines nationalism as a commitment to a world of independent nations. And their 10 broad principles include the rule of law, national independence, and free enterprise. At this level, NATCOMs sound like standard conservatives, but they also set forth more specific policy goals, such as provisions to boost domestic manufacturing and realign, realign education to serve the national interest. So, but... Again, I've talked about the NatCons on this on this program before, and things I'll say. Well, that's that sounds okay, but they don't. They're, they're missing a key ingredient, and that's that we never had a nation to begin with. We had a federal republic. We had a union of states. It wasn't a nation. And within those states, you had different, in many ways, nationalities. At the Catholic University panel, however, Jennifer Frey, a Philosophy professor at the University of South Carolina argued the national conservative movement doesn't offer meaningful solutions for working class Americans. Frey saw nationalism as inextricably linked to Trumpism. As a result, nationalism is not likely to repair civic bonds when its advocates often reject civility outright. Reject civility outright. Nationalists reject civility. Do they? I mean... Um, even by the very definition of nationalism, whether you're on the left or the right, that implies a top-down, one-size-fits-all solution to things, which is the major problem. Reno disagreed. Yes, Trump plays a role here, but Reno insisted that Trump promoted a shift, I'm sorry, prompted a shift in elite attitudes toward the middle class. Trump's focus on the forgotten man of middle-class America went beyond his time in office and signaled to Democrats, including the Biden administration, to pick up the slack. Reno offered an example as an example, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, a multi-billion dollar spending package that will purportedly help the middle class. The Biden administration is right in spending $700 billion plus to make American jobs and force manufacturing back in the U.S., he said. That's nationalism, folks. Well, I mean, in that way, that's true. I mean, there's nothing untrue about that. This is what I'm saying. What do Americans want with nationalism? Is it left-wing nationalism? Is it right-wing nationalism? What is it? Are they okay with Biden's definition? And look, what, what I'll say about Biden in many ways is he was just taking Trump's playbook, but he was a leftist saying it instead of a right winger. Now, in terms of, and Trump really isn't on the right, in terms of, though, um, foreign policy, there is a difference between the two. And I think that's one thing you should, you should see about this. But Trump was never on the right. He's just an old New Deal Democrat. Uh, so is Joe Biden. They just differ on foreign policy. That's all they are. They're New Deal Democrats. Biden has gone a little bit more into the great society than Trump did. But even Trump's views on a lot of these things are not on the right. I've been saying this for a long time. Uh, if you want to see, I mean, people, uh, the, the Trump is right there. Just go back and look at my program and what I've said about Trump over the years and what Trump really is. 
Though Reno helped draft the statement of principles, it's not clear whether this policy opinion will be endorsed by the NatCon movement at large. It's a diverse coalition. As a result, national conservatism, like its near-synonym nationalism, is hard to define. It takes on different shapes and colors depending on whom you ask. Accordingly, the fourth panelist, Michael Darty of National Review, rightly noted the protean character of nationalism. The reality is that it's not one thing, he said. Well, that becomes very difficult. Again, you have to get down to what is a nation. This is the most important question. If we can have that on the table, what is a nation? And then we can go from there. Then we can decide if we really even have nationalism in America or if we really just have a bunch of political coalitions running around out there calling themselves nationalists in the name of their own political coalition, which is basically what you had with the New England Federalists or the New England Nationalists, uh, then later Republicans, in Whigs, Republicans, whatever, in the 19th century. There wasn't really American nationalism. Unionism, I will say there was an individual, and I'll, and I'll go back to this, who really believed in, a, in an American union that benefited all and burdened all equally, and that was John C. Calhoun. There's nobody else in that great triumvirate. You could say Henry Clay, too, I mean, in a way, but not Daniel Webster. Webster was the antithesis of this. John Marshall, no. Though John Marshall, I mean, you could say he was a nationalist, but in a way that he was thinking of the United States as trying to clamp down on Jacobinism. That's what I think that's what Marshall hated more than anything else. He didn't like Thomas Jefferson. He didn't think that Jefferson was good for America, and he wanted to make sure there were no terrorists running around the countryside with guillotines trying to lop people's heads off. And he thought that uh, this wild and untamed frontier needed kind of a strong central voice that could go do that. So the states would be a problem for that, though Marshall was always working against what he essentially agreed to in the Virginia Ratifying Convention the entire time he was on the bench of the Supreme Court. So, so the question remains, is nationalism a set of policy rhetoric and priorities, a disposition, a sense of national loyalty and identity, a democratic accountability, resistance to global empire, Trumpism, a bipartisan priority, or combination of these elements? Or to reduce this blooming, buzzing confusion to three options, is it mostly about policies, a principal defense of the national good, or a populist revolt against elites? What is it? And I think those are good questions. But again, we don't get to the real nature, the real core of this. What is a nation? And he does bring that up at the end of the piece, uh, where he says, well, we have to eventually define national. What is a nation? Well, we have to do that. We should have been doing that earlier. The chameleon-like feature of nationalism has long been a problem. The writer Mark Helprin described the word as uh, parametric. A constant parameter applies to variables. Nationalism takes on new shapes depending on the context in which it is applied. The word has different functions in different historical contexts, but the ambiguity persists even within a single historical context and within a singular, similar religious circles. So it's fair to ask how fruitful these debates will be if the disputants fail to settle on a common definition. Again, if it means so many different things to different people, what use is the word? For instance, if nationalism just means supporting policies that help or at least claim to help and boost manufacturing jobs in the U.S., why do we need the word? Why not just talk about industrial policy? If it's about re reasserting the national interest and embracing national identity, why not call it call for patriotism? Well, I mean, again, patriotism is something else. National interest and national identity, patriotism and nationalism are two different things. You can't call that patriotism. I would say that uh, Richards is off the mark there. You can't call it that. Um, 
at all. It's not just love for or national interests or national identity. It's patriotism is about a place. It's about a people in a place, which is not necessarily nationalism. Indeed, the worm seems to hide, to hide a deeper ambiguity. Arguments over nationalism often seem to act as proxies for other questions. What is the nation? There it is. What is the purpose? Is the national interest something worth pursuing? Perhaps getting clarity on the answers to those questions might help bring the current debate over nationalism to clearer focus and create common ground between some self-identified nationalists and traditional conservatives. So maybe we can put these things back together. Are nationalists and traditional conservatives alien to one another? Well, it depends on what you define as traditional conservatism. It depends on what you define as traditional United States. I think they're, they're, you can't reconcile nationalism with the, with the founding. You can't do it. You can't reconcile nationalism with the Federal Republic. You can't do it. If you're a nationalist, you are not going to agree with the founding because the founding was not nationalist at all. Uh, and, and I think that's something that the nationalists get tripped up over. You have to go basically say we have Lincoln. And if you start with Lincoln and the 1868 Constitution, you're not really conserving anything. That's the real problem. You see, you get into that danger zone. Well, if I'm going to promote Lincoln, what I'm promoting is leftism. I'm promoting 19th century liberalism. I'm promoting 19th century leftism. I'm promoting the very French revolutionaries, as I talked about yesterday, that ripped down the original Federal Republic. That's what I'm doing. Well, that's not conservative. You've just played into the other side. Uh, then he gets into some things about uh, the church, the Catholic church, and where that works. And so he's taking this from a very Catholic perspective uh, and also some Aristotelian definitions too. And I, and I want to skip over that. I want to go down to the end. He says, measuring perspectives. He says, what some refer to as nationalism is simply a desire for national sovereignty and democratic accountability. Likewise, the NatCon's defining feature, abstracting from the details, might be a desire to defend and restore national identity against those who seek to dissolve it. Notions of national sovereignty and resistance to global empire needn't be at odds with humane national loyalty and principle. Moreover, if a proper understanding of the national interest includes human flourishing, then pursuing the national interest could be compatible with and even an expression of humane national loyalty as well. So he's saying that you can, you can have these different things. Uh, resistance to global empire doesn't have to be against a humane national loyalty in principle. Uh, but again, the problem is the word national. Let's talk about a federal republic. Let's talk about decentralization. We can talk about being Americans within the context of a federal republic. And that would be the most humane thing to do. right? Because you would avoid some of these nasty conflicts. He says industrial policy is still another matter and represents a departure from post-war American conservatism. Still, if NatCon's priority is the national interest rather than specific policy, and perhaps the best way for conservative skeptics of, say, industrial policy to engage NatCons is not to denounce them, is to offer evidence that such a policy is not despite good intentions in our national interest. Uh, and he's talking here about, you know, uh, tariffs, uh, essentially federally funded internal improvements, all of these things, pumping money in the economy to try to boost national production, national industrial production. That's old line Henry Clayism. That's all you're talking about there. 
Is that real nationalism or not? We know. Then we have the issue of whether it's constitutional or not. Nobody really cares about that anymore. In sum, if nationalism refers principally to loyalty to one's nation, then certainly it's worth defending. But then, why call it nationalism? If we're talking about if what we're talking about is retaining a love for one's country and homeland, what extra work is that term doing? Perhaps the answer will, will turn out to be that it has forced a debate over the virtue of national loyalty. In any case, if we want to defend the good of our nation, then we should try to use our terms carefully. And so that's how he concludes the piece. And uh, look, I agree. Nationalism, I would say, is a bad term. It's not something we should, because we don't have a national government. We've never had a national government. We don't have a national polity. We don't have any national. It's never been that. So let's talk about things in terms of a federal republic, a union, what's in the best interest of the whole. That's real unity. And that would be this kind of idea of a concurrent majority, right? Super majorities to make sure we're doing what's best interest of the whole and not just one section, one state, one group of people, whatever it is. That would be the best long term, but that would, de that would uh, demand the abandonment of the term nationalism. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.